0: Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 5, and from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. John chapter 5, verse 31 to 47, which is the end of the chapter. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are returning today to our, se- our series in John's Gospel, and we're in John 5, and the second part of Jesus' discourse with the religious leaders. Pastor David dealt with the first half of, Last week. And the context of this is really important to remember. The Lord Jesus has been doing all kinds of signs and miracles. There in John 5 at the beginning, you've got the miracle at the pool of Siloam. And he has been demonstrating his lordship over the Sabbath. And he has been speaking of his. A ministry as that given to him by his father to judge all the world, to judge the nations. All judgment has been committed to the Son. And he has even said that he is the one who will call people out of their graves to judgment. And the Jews are not unaware of the implications of this. It means he's claiming to be equal with God. And they are furious about it. So this passage is about the identity of Jesus and about the authority of Jesus. It's being challenged. It's being challenged by religious leaders who pride themselves in knowing the Scripture. And so what happens here in many respects is uh, a divine court is brought into session by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he calls four witnesses. And it's those four witnesses that we're going to talk about briefly this morning. The four witnesses that he calls with respect to his authority and identity are, first, John the Baptist. The second witness he calls are the signs and wonders that he is doing. The third witness is the Father himself, and the fourth witness are the Scriptures. Now, Effectively, what's happening here is Jesus is showing, he's manifesting that it is God himself, the triune God, who is making plain that the self-disclosure of God is manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that God is witness to that. So think about the image for a moment that we have here, which is an important one, of A court of law, because that's a familiar image for us, of being taken into a court of law where there is a defendant and there are witnesses. Now, if you're a defendant, you can be examined, but you cannot witness on your own behalf. Other witnesses, other people are called to be witnesses, to witness for or against you. And what's happening in this passage is that Jesus is effectively saying I'm calling these four witnesses to give evidence on my behalf. Now in doing this he's actually upholding the scripture itself in particular he's upholding the law of Moses because scripture makes plain that everything needs to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 15 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So, the Lord goes one better. He brings four. And they're four good witnesses because two of them are infallible. So, that's a good start. God the Father and Scripture. So, this is an open and shut case. But, He goes through the process with the religious leaders and the teachers of the law. Only if the Father supports his witness, Jesus is saying, is it true. So let's think about the first witness then in this uh, divine defense Uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. So John, we've already seen, we've been introduced to John in the earlier part of the gospel. We know the significance and importance of John. He had a ministry that the, the Pharisees themselves, Scripture says, Jesus actually tells them, they rejoiced in it for a time, for a season. They even sent people to hear the preaching of John the Baptist. In fact, some of Jesus' earliest disciples were, in fact, first disciples of John. If you uh, have your Bible, you just turn back to John chapter 1, and you look at verse 35 through 37, we read, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And John knew that that was his function. So if you remember in John chapter 3, verse 27 following, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Verse 30 there, he must increase, but I must decrease. So John understood that his Calling was to be a lamp, to be a light. It was an important ministry, it was a famous ministry, and so Jesus appeals first to John. Now he says, I'm not appealing to John because I need human beings to back up who I am. I don't need man's validation. The reason Jesus referred to John, he says, was, as the theologians would say, it was soteriological. It means it was for our salvation. It was for our salvation. So Jesus was, in a sense, making himself subject to the law, bringing these witnesses, in order that the people, his hearers, would understand the need for salvation. The same thing happened when Jesus comes to the grave of Lazarus and he begins to pray and he says, Lord, Father, I know you always hear me, but I'm, I'm praying out loud like this so that the people who are listening will believe. So this is what he's doing again. He's appealing to John. He's making reference to John and the significance of John so that people will be saved. Now, John's light, John understood that his light as a witness was a derivative light. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the light. The true light that was coming into the world, remember the apostle John says in Romans 1, the true light was coming into the world. He gives light to everyone. John comes to bear witness to the light. He's a derivative light. Like every light that you use, whether you light a candle or shine a torch, is derivative from the energy and power of the sun John's light is a derivative light from God. It's been sparked, it's been lit by God himself. And John knows his function. In fact, his ministry was predicted by the prophets. Think about the psalmist in Psalm 132, 17, says, There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. John was a lamp. He was holding up the light so that people could see the Lord Jesus, he was directing people to the Lord Jesus. But Jesus says, I've got a testimony, I have a witness who's greater than John, more significant than John, and John was very significant. Scripture says there wasn't one born of woman, no prophet born of a woman, greater than John. But he says, I have a greater witness than John, verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So what is the second witness? John's the first witness. Now notice that Jesus is pointing out that the first witness has been rejected. Witness number one, John the Baptist, you rejoiced for a while in his light. But now you've rejected his testimony. So here's my second witness. My second witness is the works that I am doing, the signs that I am doing. Now you might say, how can historical events... Be a witness. How can events be a witness? Isn't that impersonal? Well, what Jesus is pointing out here is that these signs have been performed as part of God's testimony to the Lord Jesus. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, which is in these signs and wonders, that is bearing witness to who Jesus is. The Scripture says, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. So, the Lord is saying that these signs, they point beyond themselves. It's not to be taken up so much with the sign itself, like the lame man at the pool of Siloam who's been healed. When you see a sign, you don't stop at the sign and go, oh, what a beautiful sign. Let's stay by the sign. How marvelous a sign that is. How well-proportioned it is. A sign has a purpose of signifying something, like go this way. It's a signpost to something else. So, what are the works that Jesus is doing a signpost to? Well, of course, they're a signpost to his identity. They're a signpost to his authority. But even more than that, they're a signpost to the manifestation of the kingdom and reign of God in Jesus Christ. It's that the kingdom of God is coming and has come in Christ. That's what they're pointing to. All those miracles of healing are pointing to the destination of all creation in Christ to be restored, to be reconciled to God. So that's the significance of the signs. They point to Christ's mission and his reign, the reign of God being present in him and through him. But one of the notable things about signs is that people often don't follow them, especially male drivers, (laughs) because we usually know a better route. You have to remember that. Signs are not always followed. Now, our culture, and we often think even as believers, well, if God would just do something a bit more dramatic, as though the sun coming up every morning isn't dramatic enough. The script, Jesus says, he makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. As though the molecular machines in every cell in your body repairing you all of the time every day is not miraculous enough. As though the uh, electrical impulse is passing between the hemispheres of your brain so that you can think, every day is not miraculous enough. We think, well, if God could uh, just walk down another pathway and do something a bit different, that's why there are signs, by the way. It's not because the universe runs like some sort of a clock. It's all mechanically set in place. And God kicks it off, he winds it up at the beginning of time and then leaves it to itself. And then occasionally he comes along with a divine screwdriver, puts it in the cogs, monkeys around and then pulls it out again. No, that's that's not what miracles are. Miracles are signs because they are just God doing something different than what he would normally do. So it's not normal for a man who's been dead in the grave for three days to climb out, to get out of it. His brain has turned to liquid mush. And yet Lazarus emerges with all his memories intact. Now, we tend to think that, well, if God was doing things like that, of course people would believe. Is that so? Because according to Scripture, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the response of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the religious leaders was to harden their scheme and plot to kill him. When God sent the plagues on Egypt... Pharaoh's response was not faith and repentance. When Israel is led out of Egypt and delivered through the Red Sea and God parts the waters of the Red Sea and they pass through on dry land and they're led by a a, a pillar of fire and a cloud, their response is to say, I want to go back to Egypt. Unbelief. On top of unbelief. Unbelief. When Jesus heals 10 lepers, how many even come back to acknowledge it? One. So often, what happens is when God acts in his righteousness and justice and judgment and healing in history, the response is frequently for people to be hardened in their hearts, not to believe. Now, if you ask yourself, look at our culture today and everything that's happening right now in this past 12 months, and we ask ourselves, is it a blessing from the Lord? Is disease a blessing from the Lord bestowed upon us? Is economic ruin a blessing from the Lord? Is the closure of all our businesses a blessing from the Lord? Is the closure of our borders a blessing from the Lord? Is being forced by a government to stay apart and stay away from one another a blessing from the Lord? Well, if it is, it's a very good disguise. No, the Lord is judging our culture, and it thoroughly deserves to be judged. Thoroughly. And is it resulting in people coming to the Lord in repentance and faith en masse in this country? Not so far. There's a lot of uh, closing of his church, shutting down the preaching of the word and the sacraments. There's a lot of that going on, but I'm not seeing... You know, when the plague, when, the, when a, a serious plague, I mean, a, where, where people, the bodies are really piling up, actually struck Europe in the Middle Ages, the response of people was national days of prayer called by the government by the civil authorities people were encouraged to go to communion more to go to church to repent of sin that was the response so it doesn't always mean that when God acts in unusual ways in history that people will then believe and put their faith and trust in him it just doesn't work that way And so despite all the signs that Jesus had performed, the miracles that he was doing, the response of the religious leaders was unbelief. And so they rejected the second witness, the signs that Jesus was doing. In fact, at one point, you'll recall that they attribute the miracles of Jesus to the devil. You want to open the church for people to come and worship the Lord. You're irresponsible, little devil. So, the second witness is rejected because a sign signifies something, and only if it is understood as a sign and leads to faith, and trust, and belief, is it actually effective in our lives? So, the third witness, look at that, I've done two of my witnesses, and I'm only a few minutes in. It's remarkable. The third witness that Jesus calls, which he refers to in verse 32, first of all, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true, He's now talking about the third witness is his father. His father. Now, the reason that Jesus isn't troubled or disturbed in his ministry by opposition and by persecution is because he is supremely confident at all times that he's doing the will of his father, that he has the testimony of his father. And that's why he, has, that's why he can condescend in the way that he does here. I mean, think about it. The son of God, he's just commanded a lame man to be healed. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's judge of all the nations. He allows them to put him to the defense. And he calls his witnesses in terms of the law of Moses. And he was so confident because he knew God was his father. That's why the apostle Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? That means that you and God is a majority. Always. If God is for us, who can be against us? The Father has testified in everything that Jesus is doing, but Jesus says, you haven't listened to the Father's testimony. Now, that's an indictment. You haven't heard the testimony of my Father. And what Jesus says to them is very interesting, very interesting. He says to them, look down at verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So there's the third witness. His voice you have never heard. You have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. So, as he calls his third witness, he has his third witness judge them. Now, what he says here, you've never heard God's voice. Well, that's an indictment because Moses, who appears shortly in the passage, did hear God's voice. Exodus thirty-three eleven says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So their forebears had heard the voice of God, and they claimed to be followers of Moses, and yet they didn't believe Moses. So Jesus says, you haven't, you haven't heard God the Father's voice. You've not listened. And then he says to them, you've never seen his form. Well. Jacob at Peniel wrestles with God. It's not the only theophany or Christophany in the Older Testament. A theophany, is a, a Christophany, is a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son. It's the term theologians use for a manifestation of the angel of the Lord, God the Son. There in the fiery furnace, you'll remember, one like the Son of Man, uh, Abraham, one of the angels speaking with Abraham. There are several in the Old Testament, but this is Jacob's wrestling with God, is one of them. And this is what Genesis 32:30 30 says, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So their forebears had seen God. And Jesus himself said to Philip, Philip, Do you still not understand, even though I've been among you such a long time? He who has seen me has seen the Father. For I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So, the problem there still of not seeing the Lord is their unbelief. And thirdly, Jesus tells them that they do not have God's Word abiding in them. And yet that was not true of some of their forebears. Because in the psalm, in Psalm 119:11, we read, the psalmist says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. But they hadn't nurtured the word of God in their hearts by faith. They hadn't got the word of God hidden in their hearts. The word of God didn't abide in them. It's not in you. And this is critical for us as, as an application If you look at verse 38 there, and you do not have his word abiding in you, what was their problem? It's the next verse. You search the scriptures because you think that in them. So the word was external to them. It was an external thing. It was a book. It was a text, something they revered. We'll come to that in just a moment. But the word of God didn't live and abide in them by the Holy Spirit. It is when we take the step of faith to truly believe on Christ and accept his word and surrender to his authority that we actually receive the testimony that's from God. This is why Augustine, the great father in the early church, said, I believe in order that I may understand. We often put that the other way around. We say, well, I want to understand everything first, and when I've figured it out, then I will think about where I'm going to place my faith. But Augustine knew you have to receive the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ if we want understanding. Now that means, and it, I know it sounds backwards to us, it means that this, the revelation of God in Christ is self-authenticating. That might sound like a big expression for a Sunday afternoon, especially after lunch, to be a self authenticating word, but it simply means this. If God is the creator of all things, He's the governor of all things, He's the ruler of all things, and He is the source of all definition, He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the I am that I am, who do you propose to call upon to validate His word? If you're looking for validation, right, you get a validated certificate. You get a stamp from the university. Or you get your, you've done your driving test. Lots of the youngsters are talking about their driving tests right now. Everybody wants to drive. And you get your license, right? A val- and you're often said, can you produce a valid driving license? Validated by the provincial government. So valid, to be validated is always appealing to an authority higher than yourself. So who do you propose to go to to validate the authority of the triune God? If you have a criterion of truth and authority able to validate God himself, then you've just created a new God. Greater than the God of Scripture, yeah? This is what it means to have the self-attesting Word of God. There is no criterion beyond God. It is not our culture and our critical thinking that brings God into judgment. It's not doctors and technocrats and cadres of experts who bring God into judgment or His Word. It's the other way around. It's God who brings all things in to judgment. And this is what parents mean when they say to their smaller children, because I said so. What you mean as a parent when you say because I said so is there is no court of appeal beyond what I'm saying right now. I'm the final authority. So who in all the world in all the universe has the ability to say because I said so with absolute authority? It's God himself. That's why the Bible has to be infallible in that sense. The Scripture has a self-attesting authority because the God about which it speaks governs and controls and knows all things. You can't bring any new information to God's attention to change his mind. Say, oh, you missed this. Your mind can be changed because you can learn and grow and develop. But we'll... I hate to break it to you, but God isn't learning anything from you. He's not an evolving God. He's a relational God, but He's not an evolving God. And this is the totally personal revelation of God Himself to us by the Holy Spirit. And it makes it totally unique, makes Christianity totally unique. a wholly personal understanding, a wholly relational understanding of knowledge. So God the Father is the third witness, and Jesus says effectively, you haven't heard him, you haven't seen him in me, You're not, your word isn't abiding in him, otherwise you'd have heard my word. So they've rejected the third witness, not going so well so far for them. The fourth and final witness it's scripture itself that Jesus calls to his defense. And he constantly appeals to the scripture throughout, of his, throughout his ministry, everywhere, right from the point of temptation in the worldness all the way through, Jesus appeals to scripture as the word of God, as his defense. It's no surprise that in this moment of the indictment of the religious leaders, he would Go to the word of God. And he uses the terms law and word of God interchangeably in the Bible. So when Jesus speaks about the word of God and the law of God, he means the same thing. Moses was the human instrument of the law, the Torah. But the Jews had long confused the significance of Torah, of instruction. They confused the Torah, which is the way of life, God's instruction, with the source of life which is in the redemptive work of Christ himself, the Redeemer, the promise of the Redeemer in the Older Testament and the full manifestation of the Redeemer. They had substituted the letter of the law, thinking that it was in the letter itself that they could find life rather than the person that the letter speaks of and reveals. They could, have, they could have found eternal life through the scriptures if they'd been listening, but not in the scriptures. And this is an important distinction for us to understand. There is no eternal life in scripture itself. And actually, sometimes as conservative believers, we have, there, there is a risk for some people that they slip into a kind of biblicism or bibliolatry or theologism thinks that if I know facts and stuff about the Bible, if I know confessions and the three forms of unity, and if I can repeat dogmas, if I know about it, then I'm good. There's a problem with that, is that you can be a non-believer and you can go to university and you can study this for eight years. You can get a PhD in this and not have a clue who Jesus Christ is. That's why there are a lot of bad theologians in the world. Well, there are some good ones too. There's lots of bad ones. Because just because you have a grasp as these scholars did who, were, who have thought they could put Christ on trial because you have a grasp of the Bible and a grasp of Scripture, and a grasp of our theological confessions derived from Scripture, that in them you have eternal life. You don't have eternal life in any tradition, in any confession. The Scripture, as the Word of God, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is able to save and redeem us. It's not in theoretical knowledge, It must be the word in us. That's the importance of the distinction there in verse 38 and 39. Look at it. You do not have his word abiding in you. 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. That's the role of scripture. The scriptures bear witness about Christ, the living word. That's why the scriptures are so important. Because how would you know anything about the Lord Jesus Christ unless you had Scripture, illuminated by the Holy Spirit? But you can't worship this. This is where the Orthodox Jews today are still confused. You see, a Christian does not have a problem putting their Bible aside like that. Or if you're in a hurry, or the kids are running around and they've just trodden on your Bible, you tuck it under the pew... I've not committed a sin there, because this is a very expensive, cowhide, ESV Bible, but it is an object. It's a book. Anybody can read this book? It's a book. It's got pages, look, text, writing, print. And, you know, some days it's chucking it down with rain, and I go out into the, the rain and my Bible gets wet. And I've got lots of these. I've got shelves full of them, actually. All different translations of Bibles. But there's no salvation in having a load of Bibles. There's only salvation when we appropriate the Word of God Internally and believe the word of god and embrace christ by the holy spirit and that's when this all gets illuminated for us it's the way of life the source of life is the lord jesus himself you know the jews when they read the bible still today the orthodox jews when they read the law they won't even touch it the pages they will point at it with a yad it's like an implement to they think the book is so holy But it's Christ who is holy. It's not a book. It's Christ. And we can miss his salvation if this word does not abide in us. It's not enough to know stuff, young people especially. The word must abide in us. The root of their problem was that they... Jesus tells them... He says, I do not receive glory from people, verse 41. Their problem was pride and the way they valued human opinion in the praise of men. That's why they couldn't receive and wouldn't receive the testimony of the Lord. That was the stumbling block. That's the connection there. Jesus says in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. Why? Why? Well, I know you, he says, that you do not have the love of God in you. And there we have it. You see, that's the problem. You can have devotion to a book. You can have devotion, proclaim your devotion to God and to Scripture, but be devoid of the love of God and not have His Word abiding in you. And the question for us is, are we after, are we concerned as people with the approval of God or the good opinion of men? Because that will be the key thing that will prevent us from letting the, the Word of God live and abide in us so that it transforms us and we live it out. If we're concerned, what other people think. Because that's what the Pharisees were concerned about. Scripture says they love to go about in the streets and be called doctor this and teacher that. And be, have the social status that they had. And here was this carpenter from Nazareth doing the works of the kingdom, healing the sick preaching the word, they were offended. They were offended at him. And you know, that's the thing, you see, is that when you're faithful to Christ and his word, you don't win any popularity contests. And for some people, that's too high a price, you see, because we actually like to, it's a human, it's part of the human condition to want the approval of people. And to some degree, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you wander around with no concern about whether people approve of the way you're dressed or the way you behave, you've got a problem. But the approval that we should ultimately seek is the approval that comes from God alone. And that's where the cost of discipleship is. That's where the cost of following Christ really is, is where people are offended at the message of Christ and the teaching of his word. And we will not be able to embrace and receive Christ's authority in our lives and have his word live in us if our primary concern is what people think about us and the approval that comes from men. If we do not seek to honor Christ above all men, we won't submit to his authority, Jesus says, but worse than that, we will receive other people. Look at what he says here, this is critical, in verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And isn't that the story of our culture and civilization? In recent centuries anyway. Along comes Voltaire and Rousseau. Not proclaiming Christ. Ah, oh, the first truly modern intellectual, Rousseau. The social contract. We don't need God. We don't need an authority that transcends man and human society. No, society, human society is just a contract. That we can write and update as we see fit. Never mind God. Rousseau abandoned, while he was preaching to everybody else about family and state and everything else, he abandoned all of his children to a hospice where they almost certainly died. You see, we all accept one form of authority in life or another. Leaders, thinkers, philosophers, teachers, influencers, celebrities and so on. Technocrats, politicians... Christ comes in his father's authority. But much of our culture says, oh, atheistic dialectical materialism. They don't know what it means. Karl Marx. Karl Marx. I know the key to reality, the key to human society and social life is the conflict of the social classes. It's all about economics. And people fall down and worship. South America, China, former Soviet Union, and now here. Darwin says I went round a few islands, the Galapagos Islands, in my boat, and I saw these finches with different sized beaks, and I've had a great idea. There is no creator. It's all a product of chance. All these ideas, Jesus says, people will come in their own authority, you'll believe them. So the question comes down to this, and I'm done almost. Whose authority are you going to receive? The word authority, what's the first part of that word? Author What's an author? A creator who writes something. Christ is the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega. He's the source of authority over heaven and earth. The religious perspective today though says well the author is man and his reason, his thinking, his idea. And so the scriptures, well biblical revelation, mm. It's improbable, maybe impossible, it's relative, it's subjective, it's discriminatory, it's sexist, it's homophobic, it's intolerant, it's imperialistic, it's colonial, it's irresponsible. Well, if you want to be a Christian, you have to learn to deal with those labels. I wear them as badges of honour. they don't know what they mean they don't know what they're doing they don't know what they they don't understand what they say you see the modern mind says since i can't conquer god i'm going to com- declare him to be irrelevant maybe even non-existent certainly non-essential But all of us, resting in terms of some faith or another, trust in an authority. Is it Christ? Or do you have some other authority directing your life? Because your whole life is determined by the religious choice of your authority. As one great theologian put it, who's passed away now. He says, to question God and his authority is suicidal because it means questioning the validity of life itself. Life only exists on God's terms, not in terms of man's imagination. God is God, and his word is revelation. Because God is God, his word is as authoritative as he is. We cannot honestly question his authority and establish our own word as law over him, nor can we judge him at the bar of our reason. And this was the problem with the Pharisees. They wanted their thinking, their traditions, their ideas to trump the authority of Christ and all of his witnesses. And Jesus, surprising challenge to them at the end, turns tables. It was a remarkable move, really. Sometimes you'd look at what Jesus did and you think, it's just incredible. He's speaking to these people who believe that they have the authority of Moses behind them. And so how does he finish when he's, when he's discussing the final witness, the scripture? He actually points out the fact that they didn't believe the law of God. They didn't believe the Torah. That is, they didn't believe Moses in whom they placed their hope. And so Jesus concludes by saying to them, You think I'm going to uh, accuse you? Moses will accuse you in whom you have put your hope. Because if you believed Moses you would have believed me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how can you believe what I say? Now, there's the unity of God's revelation in Scripture. That's why Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. It's one word. The word of God. So the challenge for us today in this defense that Jesus condescended to give in calling forth his three witnesses, ended up, that court of law ends up only in the condemnation of unbelief. And the challenge for us today is, will we believe his word? Or are we going to believe some other word? And the question for us personally is, do you have the attestation of the Holy Spirit in your heart that You are a child of God. Does the word of God live and abide in you? Or is it all externals? You know, you've no know information. You've been taught information. But do you really have the word of God abiding in you? Well, as we come to the Lord's table now, there's this beautiful unity of the word and sacrament. Because here we have the, the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have the very sign of his presence amongst us. The Lord's table. His body and his blood, which signifies his life in us. That's why you eat it. (laughs) Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. You cannot be my disciple. So we come to the Lord's table knowing that He is the living word, he's the living bread.